Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 26. This week, we're going to cover a bit of ID, some toxicology, as well as a request from a loyal listener. Let's get started with a rapid review. Let's cover ultrasound since we haven't done that in a while. Jeff, the absence of lung sliding is indicative of what pathology on ultrasound? Well, when the visceral and parietal pleura are not sliding back and forth on lung ultrasound, you should be suspicious for a pneumothorax. And which is a normal finding on lung ultrasound, A-lines or B-lines? A-lines are the normal finding. They're the horizontal lines that are reflections of the pleura. B-lines are concerning for pulmonary edema, and they appear as the vertical headlights throughout the thorax. And lastly, in a patient with a positive home pregnancy test and lower abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding who doesn't have a confirmed IUP, what tests do you need to perform in the emergency department? Not too surprising since we're in the ultrasound rapid review here, but I'm going to go with the ultrasound, the pelvic ultrasound, to rule out an ectopic pregnancy. And you should also send labs for a beta HCG and type and screen as well. Perfect. Let's get started with a new material. A 72-year-old man complains of painless vision loss in his left eye associated with flashing lights and floaters. Visual acuity in the left eye is 2200 and in the right eye is 2030. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, acute angle closure glaucoma, B, optic neuritis, C, retinal detachment, or D, temporal arteritis? Well, monocular, painless vision loss with floaters and flashing lights, that's got to be choice C, retinal detachment. Exactly. Retinal detachment occurs when the inner neuronal retina separates from the outer retinal pigment epithelial layer. This is usually the result of a tear in the retina from vitreous traction. And this leads to the early symptoms like flashing lights, the quote spider webs or coal dust, and floaters in the visual field. As the retina further detaches, patients usually experience painless vision loss, which is classically described as a curtain gradually lowering or raising in front of the eye. On fundoscopy, you'd expect a dull gray detached retina. And once you've diagnosed it, there isn't much the ED physician does beyond consulting an ophthalmologist for definitive management. And what about the other ocular emergencies listed in the other answer choices? How do they usually present? Choice A, acute angle closure glaucoma, that's caused by a rise in the intraocular pressure. Patients typically have painful, not painless, visual loss. On exam, you'd expect a fixed mid-dilated pupil, a hazy cornea, and perilimbic injection. We did a glaucoma question back in episode 10, so jump back to that for more review too. Choice B, optic neuritis, that's characterized by central vision loss with preservation of peripheral vision. Patients often have pain with eye movement and reduced color vision. And lastly, choice D, temporal arteritis, that's a vasculitis that causes monocular vision loss and is associated with unilateral headache and polymyalgia rheumatica. We actually did a temporal arteritis question back in, I think it was episode 13 as well. So go back and take a listen if you can't remember. You're up next. What is the most common causative organism for meningitis in a one-week-old child? Is it A, group B streptococci, B, haemophilus influenzae, C, listeria monocytogenes, or D, staphylococcus aureus? Most common cause of neonatal meningitis, that has to be group B strep. Remember that all mothers are routinely tested for GBS prior to delivery. Correct. In fact, in neonates, and that's those that are less than one month of age, group B strep accounts for more than 75% of cases of meningitis. Other common organisms that cause meningitis in this group are E. coli, listeria, and other gram-negative bacilli. And in order to effectively cover all these bacteria, first-line treatments for neonates with meningitis is cefotaxime and ampicillin or gentamicin and ampicillin. And although it's a lot to take in, let's go over the other common bacterial causes of meningitis by age group and their appropriate therapies. In the infant group, that's those that are one to three months old, you would expect the same neonatal pathogens in addition to strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitis, and H. influenza. Treatment is typically either cefotaxine and ampicillin and vancomycin or ceftriaxone, ampicillin, and vancomycin. 
Moving up in age, in children 3 months to 18 years, the three most commonly implicated pathogens are strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitidis, and H. influenza. Treatment is either a ceftriaxone and vancomycin or cefotaxime and vancomycin. In adults 18 to 50 years old, strep pneumo and Neisseria meningitis are the most common pathogens. Treatment is with ceftriaxone and vancomycin. And lastly, in those over 50, that's the elderly, yikes, early age cutoff there, in addition to strep pneumo and Neisseria meningitidis, gram-negative bacilli and listeria are also more common, so ampicillin must be added to the regimen of ceftriaxone and vancomycin. And although we just focused on bacterial causes, don't forget about adding acyclovir for possible HSV meningitis. Let's do a tox question next. A 17-year-old man presents to the ED 30 minutes after intentionally ingesting an unknown amount of drain cleaner. The active ingredient is sodium hydroxide and the pH is 13. Upon arrival, he's afebrile, his heart rate is 120, blood pressure is 130 over 70, respiratory rate is 22, and oxygen saturation is 97% on room air. He appears uncomfortable and reports chest discomfort. There are superficial burns on the oral mucosa and inflammation in the posterior oropharynx, but he's in no respiratory distress. Which of the following is true regarding this patient's care? Is it A, activated charcoal should be administered because the patient presented within an hour of ingestion? B, dilution with milk or water may be performed. C, gastric lavage should be performed to prevent systemic toxicity. D, he should be kept NPO in preparation for endoscopy. Or E, induction of vomiting with Ipecac may be attempted. So this is an alkali ingestion, which means that this teen is at risk for severe damage secondary to liquefactive necrosis. Given his clear oropharyngeal injury, the patient needs to be kept NPO in preparation for endoscopy or choice D. Perfect logic. Endoscopy is critical here as it determines the extent of the injury and helps guide management, disposition, and follow-up decisions. In caustic ingestions, endoscopy should be performed early, ideally within 12 to 24 hours. From about days 2 to 14, endoscopy should be avoided because the esophageal wounds will be at their weakest, and there's a much higher risk for esophageal perforation. Great point. Although I just hinted at it, let me quickly review key differences between acid and alkali ingestion since they're different beasts to take care of. In acid ingestions, the acid donates a hydrogen ion which desiccates the epithelial cells. This leads to a coagulation necrosis and ultimately cell death. In alkali ingestions, the hydroxide ions penetrate the tissue surfaces and cause a liquefactive necrosis and again, eventually cell death. With both types of burns, the extent of injury is determined by duration of tissue contact, the volume consumed, the concentration, as well as the pH. You can expect both GI and respiratory symptoms. GI symptoms include pain of the lips, mouth, throat, chest, and abdomen, as well as drooling, dysphagia, odonophagia, and vomiting and even hematemesis. Respiratory symptoms include hoarseness, stridor, epiglottitis, laryngeal edema and ulceration, pneumonitis, and impaired oxygen exchange. You can also see ocular symptoms like pain, tearing, irritation, and clouding of the cornea with decreased vision. And on the rest of the face, be on the lookout for burns of varying degrees. Right, and the other answer choices here are not only wrong, some of them are actually potentially harmful and even contraindicated. Choice A, activated charcoal, is contraindicated because of the increased risk of esophageal perforation and leakage of the charcoal into the mediastinum. This carries significant morbidity and mortality. Choice B, early dilution, that can be attempted in those with mild or even no symptoms, but must be avoided in patients with significant symptoms or those with potential airway compromise. Choice C, gastric lavage. Since inserting an NG tube can lead to perforation, that's also contraindicated. And lastly, choice E, induction of vomiting with Ipecac, that's contraindicated because vomiting can also cause further esophageal damage. Don't forget that in general, Ipecac has not been shown to improve outcomes and can actually increase complications. It simply has no role in the management of any ingestion. Great point, and you guys can remember that for everything. Ipecac's not going to be the answer to a tox question. 
You're up for this next question, which was requested by one of our listeners, Anna. It's definitely a good one to review. A 45-year-old man is rescued from a house fire. He was unresponsive at the scene and was intubated by paramedics. Upon arrival, he's afebrile, tacky to 130 with a blood pressure of 90 over 60. His ABG is significant for a pH of 7.16 with a carboxyhemoglobin of 20. His lactate's 11.5. What's the most appropriate treatment for potential cyanide toxicity in this patient? Is it A, administer hydroxocobalamin as a 5-gram IV infusion, B, administer sodium bicarbonate to correct the acidosis, C, administer the cyanide antidote kit, which is amyl nitrite, sodium nitrite, and sodium thiosulfate, D, arrange for the patient to receive immediate hyperbaric oxygen therapy, or is it E, hyperventilate the patient and maintain FiO2 at 100%? Wow, so there's a lot to talk about in this question. So what makes this question a little bit harder is that this guy is both a cyanide toxicity and a carbon monoxide toxicity. Given the concomitant carbon monoxide ingestion, the answer here would be choice A. Administer hydroxocobalamin as a 5-gram infusion. Exactly. Cyanide toxicity can be treated in one of two ways, by giving either hydroxocobalamin or with the traditional kit, which includes a combination of amyl nitrite, sodium nitrite, and sodium thiosulfate. However, in the setting of a high carboxyhemoglobin levels, which are common in fire victims, administering the traditional cyanide antidote kit can induce methemoglobinemia, which can further decrease the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood and can lead to devastating outcomes. And to be perfectly clear, that's an expected complication of the traditional antidote kit. Let's go through the pathophysiology here. The amyl nitrate causes the formation of methemoglobin. The methemoglobin then binds to cyanide, forming cyanomethemoglobin, thus freeing the cyanide from the mitochondria and restoring normal oxidative metabolism. Sodium thiosulfate enhances the conversion of cyanide to thiocyanate, which is renally excreted. You can think of the nitrites as temporizing measures, while the sodium thiosulfate does its work to aid in cyanide excretion. In an otherwise healthy person, methemoglobinemia isn't a problem. However, in someone with already decreased oxygen carrying capacity, such as our patient, the nitrite wouldn't be well tolerated. If hydroxycobalamin isn't available, you can still give the sodium thiosulfate alone here. Right, and when you correctly give the hydroxycobalamin via a 5-gram IV infusion, this binds to the cyanide to form cyanocobalamin, which is a non-toxic product, and you can avoid all the problems you and I both just discussed. And this question explicitly asked about cyanide toxicity, but even if it didn't, there are some clues which would have helped you come to that diagnosis. This patient has a significantly elevated lactate level and a metabolic acidosis. These are key findings in cyanide poisonings. Cyanide is a potent asphyxiant that binds cytochrome oxidase in the mitochondria, thereby uncoupling oxidative phosphorylation and causing a lactic acidosis. It's actually very reasonable and appropriate to consider cyanide toxicity in the differential diagnosis of any unresponsive patient with a metabolic acidosis and an elevated lactate level, especially if the lactate's over 10 millimoles per liter. What a tough question, but definitely some great points in there that we'll review more in future episodes too. Thanks for the recommendation, Anna. All right, let's turn back to the question bank for the next randomly generated question. An 85-year-old man presents via ambulance after a reported fall. He's nonverbal, bedbound, and incontinent of urine and stool at baseline. He requires around-the-clock care, which is primarily provided by his daughter, a retired nurse. There are also several grandchildren that assist with his care on a daily basis. The EMS team is concerned for elder abuse and alerts you of their concerns on arrival to the ED. Which of the following factors is associated with a greater likelihood of underlying elder abuse? Is it A, the daughter's occupation, B, the history of incontinence, C, male sex, or D, support by the grandchildren? Not 100% sure about this one. Support by the grandchildren can't be it since, well, that's supportive. The daughter's former occupation of a nurse also seems supportive, so that shouldn't be it. That leaves me with the history of incontinence and the male sex. I'll go with choice B, history of incontinence. 
That's right. Elder abuse can come in any form, physical, sexual, emotional, neglect, abandonment, and even financial. There are a ton of risk factors which are important to be aware of. In terms of the caregiver, substance abuse, mental illness, financial dependence, unemployment, and long duration as a caretaker are all key risk factors. In terms of the elder, physical impairment, financial dependence, low social support, female gender, advanced age, incontinence, and the history of family violence are also all risk factors. With respect to the environment, remember a shared or overcrowded living condition, social isolation, and lack of family support are important risk factors. And lastly, institutionally speaking, poor working conditions, inadequate training, low wages, and low staff-to-patient ratios are important risk factors. Lots to remember there. And even though it may be one of the, quote, soft topics in emergency medicine, recognizing such factors could make a real difference in outcomes, so they're crucial to not ignore. All right, you're up for the last question of the day. Which of the following is true regarding the characteristic rash of chickenpox? Is it A, lesions appear over two to four weeks with multiple stages present at once? B, lesions appear over two to four weeks with one stage present at a time? C, lesions appear over days and fade by the third day? Or D, lesions appear over days with multiple stages present at once? The lesions of chickenpox definitely appear over days with multiple stages present at once. So the answer here would be choice D. Exactly. Not something we see all too frequently anymore due to widespread vaccination, but it's still an important topic. Chickenpox is highly contagious, but generally benign, and is a self-limited viral disease. It's caused by the varicella zoster virus, or human herpes virus 3. Usually, symptoms begin with that of a typical viral syndrome with sudden onset of fever and malaise. In addition, you can expect a pustular maculopapular rash that appears anywhere on the skin or mucous membranes. And the lesions typically become vesiculated and then scab over the course of three to four days prior to resolving. The lesions often appear in crops, with multiple lesions at various stages at the same time. Usually the rash starts at the hairline and spreads inferiorly to the chest, palms, and soles. And like all viruses, uncomplicated infections are treated supportively with antipyretics, antipyretics, and analgesia. In patients who are immunosuppressed or those over 12 years of age, antivirals may also be used. And don't forget that chickenpox are considered contagious from five days before the appearance of the first vesicle to five days after. And one last point before we close out with our rapid review. There are two preparations of the VZV vaccine. Both are live, attenuated viruses and are recommended for all immunocompetent infants over the age of one and in all non-infected immunocompetent adults. Perfect. I'll get us started with a rapid review. Retinal detachment is associated with painless monocular vision loss with floaters and flashing lights. On fundoscopy of those with a retinal detachment, the retina appears dull and gray. Retinal detachment is treated surgically or with laser therapy, so consult ophthalmology immediately. Acute angle closure glaucoma classically presents with painful monocular vision loss. The pupil will be fixed and mid-dilated with a hazy cornea and perilimbic injection. Optic neuritis is characterized by central vision loss with preserved peripheral vision. Patients may also report pain with eye movement and reduced color vision. Temporal arteritis is a vasculitis that causes monocular vision loss and is associated with unilateral headaches and polymyalgia rheumatica. In neonates, 75% of cases of meningitis are caused by group B strep. Other causes include E. coli and listeria and other gram-negative bacilli. Treatment is with cefotaxime and ampicillin or gentamicin and ampicillin. In infants, bacterial causes of meningitis additionally include strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitidis, and H. influenza. Treat this age group with vancomycin, ampicillin, and cefotaxime or ceftriaxone. In children 3 months to 18 years, the three most commonly implicated pathogens in meningitis are strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitidis, and H. influenza. Treatment is either with ceftriaxone and vancomycin or cefotaxime and vancomycin. 
in adults 18 to 50 years old, strep pneumo and Neisseria meningitidis are the most common pathogens. Treat these guys with ceftriaxone and vancomycin. In those over 50, in addition to strep pneumo and Neisseria meningitidis, gram-negative bacilli and listeria are also common, so ampicillin must be added to ceftriaxone and vancomycin. After an alkali ingestion, early endoscopy is critical as it determines the extent of the injury and helps guide management, disposition, and follow-up decisions. So all patients should be kept NPO following ingestions. Cyanide toxicity can be treated by giving either hydroxocobalamin or with the traditional kit, which includes a combination of amyl nitrite, sodium nitrite, and sodium thiosulfate. For fire victims who also have elevated carboxyhemoglobin levels, cyanide poisoning should be treated with hydroxocobalamin or sodium thiosulfate if hydroxocobalamin is not available. In the traditional cyanide overdose kits, the nitrites cause a methemoglobinemia, regenerating the mitochondria and restoring oxidative phosphorylation, while the thiosulfate aids in excretion. Elder abuse can come in many forms, physical, sexual, emotional, neglect, abandonment, and even financial. Failure to recognize it can lead to significant morbidity and mortality. The lesions of chickenpox appear over days with multiple stages present at one time. They first appear at the hairline and then spread caudally. Chickenpox is caused by the varicella zoster virus, or human herpes virus 3. Treatment is supportive with antipyretics, antipruritics, and analgesia. There are two vaccines for chickenpox. Both are live attenuated vaccines and are recommended for all immunocompetent infants over the age of one and in all non-infected immunocompetent adults. So that wraps up Roshcast episode 26. No trauma ringtones this week, so keep listening for it in the coming episodes. 